Hello and welcome to another episode of Normandy FM. I'm one of your co-hosts, Eric Van Allen, joined by Kenneth Shepard. Ken, how you doing? You didn't tell me this is just a Zelda game. I I feel like we've had that discussion a few points now. Yeah, but I don't like, I don't feel like I was really over. I don't feel like I was really made aware of that uh, like upfront that this is just like sure we, we've gone to a bunch of different places but like you didn't tell me that oh we're gonna go start collecting magical objects that are mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. themed dungeons that there is a giant field almost reminiscent of Hyrule Field uh, from Ocarina of Time and we are going to go to different zones connected to that field. Uh, no, like, this is very much a game that is uh, playing on references from the past, I believe. And we are, of course, talking about Near Replicant, the game we are ostensibly playing for, for Normandy FM. One of us if is you're playing. tuning in, yeah, yeah. Um, if you're tuning in, thank you again for, for hanging out with us. We know that this year has been a bit weird in terms of our published schedule but uh we love that people still show up every time for new episodes and we are still committed to doing this because i think especially now we're really getting into the meat of near replicant the game and uh i am really excited to get into some of the next couple weeks that we have here talking about the uh subject material that we have but if you're new if you're just joining the podcast now for some reason, hi, we're Normandy FM. We are a retrospective podcast series that covers a lot of different games. Uh, we've done Mass Effect, Dragon Age, a bunch of Bioware stuff, and then various other games, including The Last of Us and uh, Cyberpunk, that you can go and check out in our backlog. You can always head over to patreon.com slash FM if you want to help us out. Any amount just kind of acts as a tip jar for us to uh, help with hosting costs and various other things. Uh, and... If you back us there you can get into the backer discord as well and hang out and talk with other people who support the show at the end of the show we'll shout out everybody who backs us there but uh yeah you know welcome welcome to the show we are talking about near replicant today our schedule was thrown a little off so let's do some clarification here because i forgot how near replicant works <laughs> in certain parts so today we are specifically talking about uh, the Lost Shrine, the the part two revisit to the Lost Shrine, the first part of the Junk Heap uh, revisit, and then the Seaport, which is a new quest specifically for Near Replicant. We'll talk more about that when we get there, but those are the ones we're kind of doing today. And then next week, or week, episode, <laughs> next episode, we'll talk about the return to the Junk Heap to finish that stuff up, as well as the... Uh, the forest of oh it's the forest of dreams right the dreaming forest um the i uh, always forget it, it the quest is called the memory tree that's how i remember it um but basically the the return to the place that uh we have been if you have not been able to tell yet near replicant the second half you're just kind of revisiting of all of these places forest of myth thank you um you're kind of just revisiting all these places that we've visited in part one uh to find these things which we'll talk about in a moment but first we gotta talk about how Kaine and Emil just can't stay in the village it's a bad time to be compatriots of Nier isn't it Ken so true um so Nier is pretty frustrated with Devil and Popola as we start this section uh Popla uh, and, and Devil are like hey uh the the townspeople just don't want Kaine and Emil to stay in the village so they have to sleep outside uh near kind of gets mad and then like 
makes cool with it and moves on with it. Yeah, uh, and but then doesn't. I I had a lot of thoughts about that particular plot line throughout the section that we'll get into more. But uh, yeah, as we start out, he is like uh, apologetic for getting angry at Devil and Popola. And I was just like, okay. okay. Yeah, I I think uh, I think this is a really interesting thing to explore here in terms of we especially if you have not been doing the side quests up to this point uh the question of like what is who are devil and popola too near is kind of an interesting thing because a lot of the side quests especially in part one really position them as like these kind of caretakers for the village everyone loves them everybody like hangs out with them they're not like the it's not like they're elected or anything like that but they are kind of seen as the leaders of this village um and so for Nier and uh, Yona, obviously, these are almost kind of maternal figures, but also kind of like big sister figures. And so to suddenly have this like conflict here between them as Nier uh, is trying to deal with the fact that they are doing something that Nier feels is very wrong and, and, and feels bad about, um, but also trying to reconcile that with like, these are people who have traditionally meant well for me, uh, I think is, is kind of an interesting way to set up this relationship early on in part two. Uh, anyways, we move on. Um, Popola brings up the lost shrine and uh, we, we realize that this is a place that obviously has some big connections to who we are, to who Nier is. This is where Nier and Weiss first met. Uh, this is where Yona was that one time. Uh, the Shadow Lord's lair is probably somehow connected to it, uh, but the bridge leading there, we want to go investigate it, but we can't get there. Uh, we're going to have to use the canal. Remember fixing the canal back in part one? It comes back around. <laughs> um, we get to the boat and we meet uh, Red Bagman. He's been hanging out and working at the canal ever since we uh, last worked with him, and he tells us all about his uh, him and his wife fighting again. Oh, geez. Oh, man. They're just always getting at it. Always, always joking and jostling. <laughs> mm. I mean, we have, he, he makes ball and chain jokes. We're going to throw it out there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, mm. well, we'll talk more about this in a little bit. Yeah. Um, we also have a pseudo fast travel now. Uh, it's not as prevalent as you would think it is. You're still probably going to have to go out to the world map pretty often, but it does cut down on some of the backtracking you'd have to do, especially oh. if you're doing some of the side quests that are in this part. And since this uh, second half is very side quest heavy, I do find that the fast travel options here make life a little bit easier, just so you don't have to do some of the big treks back and forth when you're doing some of those uh long like talk to person in one area then talk to person in another another area quests that we're going to run into um i'm i'm realizing looking at like i'm scrolling through these notes and uh <laughs> there's up here we've got we got fast travel motherfuckers and then if you scroll down a little bit down uh, <clears throat> uh where is it i, I see uh, i said oh god damn it just fast travel me there yokotaro why are you doing this uh, you got to experience the world, Ken. You've I've already seen it once. the world. It, this, mm. this, you saw it once pre-time skip. I mean, it's still mostly the same. Mm. Mm. Like, the notes for this episode are just like the it's so over, we're so back meme. Just like... Because, <laughs> like, in spite of, like, the, the negative tone that I have right now, I actually did click with a lot of near in this episode. Uh, mm -hmm. And then just found, like, a lot of stuff that was like, oh, I don't think I jive with this at all. 
what what is life if not full of contrast? Well, we should talk about some of the ways you're clicking with it because we head to the Lost Shrine. We've got the whole party back together. We're doing the whole reclimb up the Lost Shrine, and it really seems like combat started to click with you here in a way it wasn't before. And we we talked about this like when we had the time skip when Oka's case suddenly near has this whole new arsenal and it actually there's actually like meaning to what weapon you were holding when you enter a fight. I had been kind of using just the spear as my my default, and then when we met some of the armored shielded enemies here at the shrine I was like oh they can block literally everything I can do uh but I also had been sticking to uh one particular set of magic which was like the the bullet the the bullets yeah yeah uh and I was like oh maybe I should actually go mess around with this because like now none of those things are working uh where originally they they were just kind of foolproof uh throughout the first section of the game so I ended up switching around my weapons a bit which meant getting like the the heavy heavy sword out and i switched what, what did i put in here um yeah i switched. You used dark execution which is yeah. like the ground attack and then like dark hand which is like the it's kind of like a fist grab attack thing yeah it, it's what it sounds like um yeah and both of those actually managed to get past those shields and past that armor and uh, restrain enemies or just knock them back in a way that allowed me to finally just like wail on them for a bit and that was just like I feel like that little bit of depth that this game felt like it's needed for a long time because just being able to, you know, slash away or shoot away at anything that came my way just kind of got very monotonous, which was a lot of my problem with Automata kind of broadly. Because mm -hmm. if, if I'm remembering correctly, that never really changed for me. Um, well, obviously it would change like, when you change characters in that game and like your playstyle has to change and be, uh, you know, working with what you've got. But uh, just like having... Those little moments where, like, my, my strategy actually needs to change to progress was, like, an aha moment. It's not, you know, quite to the level of games of its style that I think have surpassed that, but um, it was at least a moment where, like, I'm actually engaging with all the systems that it has. I still haven't fucked around with the words because, like, that's, that still, to me, feels kind of superfluous. But uh, finally having a reason to switch weapons, uh, switch strategies, uh, was one of the best moments of this game for me so far. Yeah, I do feel like once now that we're into the the second half of the game, like I've I've said it before that like a lot of part one of Near Replicant feels like the the prologue, the build up, the lead up, like it needs to kind of build you a foundation so it can do everything that's going to do in part two, and I think that's even felt in the combat that like there are a lot of just basic fundamentals that you have to learn early on about like what verbs do you have what things can you do in this world and now in part two they introduce weapon types i think you start to get more words that do more interesting things than just like give you bonus damage or whatever mm -hmm. and definitely the the magic starts to play a greater role too i remember using a lot more of the spells and having to think about what spells i was using and when they were most useful uh, throughout here and i really really like that part i i do agree i think automata's combat is probably overall better and and that's not even by virtue of i do think you have to engage more with your replicants combat by way of force whereas automata is just better if you choose to make it better i i do think there's an element and i'm really curious to revisit it soon uh of how much better does that game feel versus how much does it ask of you to do? Because I do remember not really having to switch equipment very often in Automata unless I was just 
getting power scaled and then it was just like okay flip out my somewhat good damage chips for better damage chips and i'm Mm -hmm. I'm interested to see how much i like re-engage with that stuff now but um i do think this is a, a part of the game where they start to trust that the player is going to deal with the difficulty a bit more and uh mm-hmm. there are some sections coming up that i do think will actually feel a bit more like a challenge unless like you are kind of doing a a fairly standard brawler sort of situation where you're just kind of going through the motions um as we head up the Lost Shrine, Nier does say that he's going to uh, start sleeping outside the village like Kaine and Emil as a protest of sorts. And, and they kind of like rebuff him on that and are like, hey, like, don't worry, like, we're fine. And there's a really nice little exchange of Emil and Kaine talking about how they like hang out by the fire and, and swap stories and things like that. Um, put a pin in that. Put a pin in that for much later for now. But <laughs> um, I do think it's interesting also seeing here a divide between the way that near is allowed to move through the world and the way that Kaine and Emil are allowed to move through the world if that makes sense I feel like this is a part where for all the fact that we have like a party that is unified now there is still a moment where near realizes that he is afforded some luxuries that Kaine and Emil are not specifically and he has to kind of reckon with that and I find that an interesting character moment for especially for Nier, but even in the way that Kaine and Emil kind of respond to it. Yeah, I and we'll get into this more like as we go through the episode. Because I feel like I was I, I said it and this this might have been like a bit reductive, but I was talking to in front of the show, Jesse Vitelli, and I was like, Hey Jesse, is the writing, like in terms of like the actual script and words that are said, is the writing of Nier bad? And that was all I said initially. And then well, like the more I think about it is like, well, this specifically is something that bothered me was that there's like this weird in- inconsistency in terms of what it feels like Nier believes about this because like you know initially he's like hey this is wrong and like a you know a human level no it's fine actually and then but he's like oh I want to stage a protest but then the game is like oh but we don't want you to have to not be able to go into where we have established our home bases in the video game and so like this this back and forth which I think like having conflicting feelings is fine I think the way that it, it kind of comes back to the stuff that we were talking about when Michael was on, there's this, like, near condenses arcs a lot, it feels like, um, in a way that feels almost, like, anime episodic more than anything else. Like, I think, like, you, as we have been doing for this show, like, you can kind of really narrow down some of these sections into, like, very discrete chapters that we, it, it feels like it's trying to deal with, you know, a lot of the subject matter in a really condensed amount of time, and that's where the pacing gets, gets to me, because, you know, you have a lot of stuff that you really want to dive into with these characters that you want them to struggle with, that you want them to kind of reckon with, and it just feels like it can't let any moment or thought breathe long enough to kind of get that satisfying build-up and conclusion. And it also, I mean, it's going to kind of come to a head when we get to the, the boss of this section where it's like, it's making like a really dramatic callback to something that happened like four minutes ago. And... Mm-hmm that condensed writing, that rushed writing, just like, and it, it might also just be because of the nature of how we play the, the, uh, this game for the show, is that, like, we end up doing a lot of those very condensed story moments all at once, so it feels like we get, or we get, like, you know, it's brought up and we get resolution very quickly, and so I don't really know if that's, I mean, I, I think I'm fairly confident enough at this point with the way that this game is paced out different story sections to kind of say, I think it's the, the game's problem more than so is us playing it this way. 
because that's just becoming a pattern at this point where I, it really, I think, stood out to me both in terms of Nier's sort of back and forth between what he's thinking, but when we get to a point later in this where Emil is going to make, like a, again, like this really theatrical, emotional plea for Kaine to basically get through something because he likes camping out with her when that sort of emotional touchstone was only just brought up. I, mm, so again, I, I said before we started recording, I'm going to say this again here. I, I do have to be careful about how much I say here because there is, there are elements of like this game likes to recontextualize itself very often. And uh, we're not seeing all of that yet, but we will see some of it at some point in the future. So I will say like, there's a lot of stuff that I have to just tell you, like roll with it. I promise okay. it'll like click. Um, but the one thing I will say is that I do think there's an element of near does not really have a lot of too many moments where you are supposed to downshift because I think those moments where you downshift and are supposed to kind of like sit with what's happening are when the game is like, Hey, go walk from the junk heap back home. And like, I think there's something to be said for games that think of it that way. Um, maybe it's just because I'm coming off of you and I just both played Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Mm. And one thing that surprised me about that game was the way in which I felt like I had more time with my thoughts mm -hmm. about the game because I was spending less time flitting between actual plot beats and more time just doing mm -hmm. stuff in the world where my I was kind of going through the motions and it lets your brain kind of downshift. And I find that interesting because near does have those moments. They're largely in between large areas, but when you're in like a story area, you are kind of doing a lot all at once. There's a lot happening. And I, I think it's fair to point out that that pacing feels off in the moment. I mean, even within this section, we're going to have a moment where we have a big boss fight and a dramatic resolution. And then the screen just goes like one week later and pops us out mm. afterwards. And it's like, Oh, okay. I guess we're just like speeding through that. But also that's, I also like that this game kind of respects my time, I guess it is yeah, pretty it is. succinctly like a 20 hour video game. And, um, I like that there's a level of we're we're not going to spend forever like lobbing stuff at you. There's side stuff here if you want to do it, and some of it is pretty nece actually necessary for for some of the endings, but otherwise like fairly necessary just for getting through the game, but um not wholly required, but this is a pretty like contained story too, and it really mm. especially on the main path is doing everything for a reason. And so I feel like I'm willing to make that concession because everything does build up to the sum of its parts. Um, and maybe this is just the difference of like experiencing it in the moment for the first time versus like re-experiencing it mm. in hindsight. And so I have to like factor that into like, I have a bias here as well that I'm like seeing sure. this as like, I, I have finished this game. I know how it all plays out. So maybe I'm mm. being a little forgiving of some stuff. Sure. I mean, it is interesting that you bring up Rebirth as a comparison point because, yeah, we that game is very fresh in both of our minds. And I think it Rebirth, for all, it's like... It, it's, it's like the inverse problem where, because the game is structured the way it is and is as, like, long, but also the, the main plot of it is spread so thin, you spend so much just, like, time with characters mm -hmm. doing things 
experiencing each other and sort of you know getting to know them you know even for a lot of people getting to know them again in a, in a more meaningful way than you maybe did almost 30 years ago where it, it does feel like that game is less you know it, it's not breakneck in the way that near is it's kind of allowing you to really sit with a moment and like what something means to a character without feeling that like weirdly rushed and expedited uh maybe at the expense of the actual main plot so it's like two kind of conflicting narrative design philosophies yeah and it kind of comes down to like maybe 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 in the end near up can by nature of also being a complete story as opposed to a third of one a lot of those things those quickly moving through uh an idea or a character beat uh kind of works itself out by the end it'll It'll be interesting getting through some of this, I think, especially as we get into the the later parts of this. I'm I'm curious how you feel about it, but we we get up through the um the shrine. We we keep going up and up and up and fighting stuff. Uh, we do touch on some of the shade stuff that I do want to touch on. Um, mainly that like shades are still kind of um sensitive to sunlight which is like an interesting thing i feel like we haven't talked about too much there have been shades in sunlight previously yeah, that um, was confusing to me because of that. i was like what do you what do you mean like i've been fighting so, these things in the fucking broad daylight this whole time well, so the the weird factor in all this is that like okay when you're outside in say the the big field uh right out, the one that links to mm-hmm. the junk heap and the forest and the airy uh it's pretty overcast and so usually like overcast means that shades can exist uh whereas like direct sunlight so that's why like i think it is heavily implied that's why the seaport has thrived for so long is because Mm. it gets like direct sunlight so like shades are not going to appear there um put a pin in that (laughs) um also a lot of the areas in which you fight shades tend to be pretty overcast in some way and that is implied to be just the means by which uh, more shades are appearing is that like the weather is getting worse. Um, Hey, look, there might be a climate change metaphor in all this, (laughs) but uh, that, that is a thing that I just wanted to note because we hadn't really talked much about it up to this point. And there is a moment here where we can kind of lure some creatures of darkness into the light uh, to take them out. Um, We do this big fight. Uh, There's like a synergy attack and it's super sick. Uh, we, we do a lot of like cool stuff while we're in this original room where we had met Weiss for the first time and had the big uh, dual head guy fight and, and acquired the book. Now we're back here. Um, and while we're doing this fight, we are firing off a magic spell and its spear breaks off and flies right through Kaine. And we impale the monster in Kaine and then turn to Kaine and... As near as trying to like figure out, kind of, you know, are you all right? Are you doing okay? She's like, get back, and the black scrawl starts to envelop her body, and uh, dark magic like pulses out, and she becomes basically, I think, what is referred to as berserk Kaine. Um, but we have a boss fight with Kaine here. Uh, we haven't really talked much about Kaine and the black scrawl, have we? No. <laughs> this this aspect of kaine because i feel like it it doesn't come up too often uh here and it's it's interesting to have this here and have we as as we have this fight with um with kaine and eventually like strike her and and bring her back to her normal form um 
she starts saying that she's too dangerous to be around. She's too dangerous to, to be near us. And then Emil um, starts sobbing and says, says that, you know, he'd only be able to stand sleeping outside and, and being like he is now with his new body and all that, because uh, Emil gets to be with Kaine. And uh, we really have a beautiful moment between these two. Uh, I fucking love Kaine and Emil so much. Mm. <laughs> I love these characters. Um but the, it sounds like this affected you too. Oh yeah, like I mean, I, I'm a sucker for the power of friendship in this house, so uh, mm. it definitely got to me. And it, this also was just like a testament to the excellent vocal performances. It did feel again like, and we talked about this before. Like I do still feel like it's trying to retroactively make like the body horror of what Emil is going through a thing when it very quickly got past it before. Um, and again, like I don't know if this is them sort of like waffling back and forth about how they want him to feel about it or or if it is just the nature of his position to be okay with it some moments and then not okay with it later i mean that's that's a very human thing though is like just because you've you've kind of accepted something doesn't mean that you're always going to feel okay with it and like here anil is saying like the reason why i'm able to deal with this is because i've got you in my life and like that's why it's important that you stay here yeah and like i i buy all that it's just like when i've noticed this like weird pacing and inconsistency with the writing in this game that's why i'm just like is is that what you meant or was that just what you kind of happened upon i guess i i, I really feel like this is just a moment of emil trying to do for kine what kine oh, sure. did for emil all those years ago um you know f- what was it like five years ago at this point uh if we go pre-time skip um the when kine talks to emil outside the the house the the manor um before the time skip happens uh, this is kind of like Emil doing the same for Kaine here. Mm-hmm. Like, I I am here for you. Like, we we can back each other up here. Um. Anyways, we after this fight, the Stone Guardian has fallen. An elevator in the back of the room opens up, and we obtain a mysterious stone fragment that looks like a piece of something rather old. It has a bunch of writing and stuff on it. It's probably come from a different time. And Popola might know something about it. First of all, an elevator fucking weird right <laughs> i i feel yeah. like uh one of my favorite things in near replicant is when you're in like you forget that this is post-apocalyptic and so it feels very much like a fantasy game and then mm-hmm. suddenly you walk into a place like the junk heap and you're like oh there's machinery and robots here <laughs> and no. this is also a very different thing i i'm curious about how it feels to you ken because uh, I feel like maybe coming from Nier Automata, the effect, for, for me at least, because I played Nier Automata before Nier Replicant, uh, I was kind of ready for the idea that machines mm. might exist in this world. Whereas, like, I'm curious if the effect hits for you that, like, oh, going from what is a very fantasy setting to all of a sudden being in the middle of technology and stuff like that. I feel like that has never really left my mind because I'm still curious as to how Nier is apparently a thousand years old and looks like he's mm-hmm. not a day over 30. Mm-hmm. So... In that way, like, yeah, also having come from playing Automata first, it's like I'm kind of waiting for the turn, I'm waiting for the connection. And mm. so, in a weird way, like, I know this this game starts in what seems like present day, and then kind of, like, has, almost, almost feel like it kind of trails back into, you know, like, like you said, like a more fantasy, older setting, and then I know it's going to end up in, like, straight-up sci-fi in Automata. And I know that, like, I mean, I feel like I've gotten like a, a kind of mixed sense, sense from 
going through this as to like how directly Replicant ties into Automata. And so maybe oh, they that's do. Something... They, they directly tie in. I will tell you that much right now. They, I, I guess I, I, guess it, I mean it's... more in like, will the events of Replicant have like a tangible effect beyond having happened in this world? Mm, that that's an interesting question. That's a very interesting question. So uh, yeah, I guess in that way, it, like we've been to like the fucking the junk heap and the the fucking whatever that thing was under Emil's mansion. Like so, like there's been you know mm-hmm. constant hints towards that you know this world has grown over something that was tonally very different. So when like things like that happen, it's just like oh that just feels like a kind of natural extension of what we've seen so far. Mm. I think at some point we're going to have to maybe interject a lore history lesson somewhere in here. I think I know where we're going to do it. So I'll surprise you with it at some point, but uh, those at home, just be ready for at some point, probably around the time that we get to ending a, we'll have to do a quick lore side tangent live on the pod. I'm very excited for that. (laughs) Okay. Um, anyways (laughs) anyways <laughs> put a little pin in that uh we head back to popola the village and uh, she says it's a cipher of some kind the stone fragment that we've acquired and thinks it might be part of the key to unlocking the shadow lord's castle so you, we've got this very classic rpg uh the castle we have to unlock the entrance to the castle and we've got to get these different fragments so we have one called the stone guardian and it seems to be there are four other fragments that we need to complete this mysterious uh, key. And they are Sacrifice, the Law of Robotics, the Memory Tree, and Loyal Cerberus. Uh, and they all seem to kind of correspond with different areas. Uh, the Law of Robotics, Junk Heap, Memory Tree, Forest of Myth. Uh, unsure about the other two right now. Uh, if you are an astute <laughs> payer of attention at home, you might be able to guess where... At least what other areas we'll be heading to, maybe not which ones they line up with. But, uh, yeah, we do know that if we head there and kill big monsters, we'll probably find more pieces. So that is the plan. And then Weiss even tries to pull Nier back on this a little bit and says, like, we shouldn't go on a murderous rampage. And then Nier's like, we're just killing shades. It's fine. So here here was another moment where I was like, I don't know if the writing of this game is good. And again, like... I mean, like, the script, the dialogue, as opposed to, like, the broad emotional strokes. Mm. Because, like, I don't really know why why says that beyond the game trying to, like, fill, fill dialogue space. Because, like, mm. that, that, again, like, kind of goes back to near having sort of, like, back and forth about how he feels about uh, Emil and Kaina having to sleep outside. And then suddenly Weiss takes, like, a moral issue with us killing Shades. Um, despite having done that for like a dozen hours of video game at this point and I'm not sure whether I should like internalize that as like a character trait of Weiss or not or if it's just like the game trying to fill time and like have him get like have him say something in the scene no I don't think it's fill time at all Um, I will pose this to you a question because I think there are some like themes that we have not talked about much up to this point that we should start to talk about um number one do you think that was a question because weiss cares about the shades or because weiss cares about near i'm sure it's about like broadly worrying about near's safety um but then the frame you just get or meant or his mental state for fighting shades from being so hell-bent 
on trying to find Yona that he's pretty much willing to just go massacre things for the sake of massacring things because he think he he thinks he might get something out of it. I think then if if that's what they're going for, I think that the framing is a little off for me because shades have never been portrayed as anything other than threats like bordering on mindless. Um, which you know maybe there's a big reveal at some point that they are something else because like if if Nier was going after people, you know things that have been portrayed as anything other than like a negative force of nature, uh, mm. then I'd maybe be more willing to buy into it. And so like if if there's more to the shades than the game is not on yet, then you know that's that's all well and well, good. I just that's the, a that's a final point I would leave you with not to not to elicit any sort of like. Um, epiphany from you here some sort of like revelation but more like something that I think the game does want you to be chewing on at this point which is why are you okay with killing shades and why are you okay with murdering them in pursuit of your goals Um, I think a lot of side quests up to this point which is why I mention it have Mm. dealt with some of the things that surround that idea of like why is it okay to do such a thing? And we're, we're actually about to do a main quest, which I think does kind of broach this subject broadly, which is why are you okay with killing a shade? Um, and I, I, to be clear, like, I'm not saying that like, Oh, you, you should feel like, like up to this point, shades are this negative force. Like you've described, they are the enemy in this game. But I think near replicant broadly at this point is starting to turn the lens back around and interrogate maybe not you, the player, in terms of any sort of like agency that you have, but maybe broadly in terms of like, why does the world view this force this way? And what are the situations that have led to that? And are they always consistent or have they changed over time? That's kind of what we're breaching into. And we'll talk more about that when we get sure. to the ferryman part of this yeah. uh, section. Cause I mean, I'll just say like up to this point in the, in the game and in the, in the main plot line, which I think you do need to, if you're going to kind of have this thematic thrust into your main plot, I think that stuff needs to be brought up in the main plot. Cause right now the only time, only thing we've ever really seen of the shades of the point is that they are attacking people like that. They are, uh, oh, absolutely. Actively yes. doing harm. And so, like, that's maybe where some of the, the friction comes for me. Is that, like, if that is a plot line and side quest, then, you know, that's yes. something Shade, I haven't seen shades, yet. Shades and uh, people do not get along. We, we have established no. that. Um, so, moving forward. <laughs> Put that in the... Stick that in the back of your craw. We'll come back to it. <laughs> um, we're we basically decide that we're going to go out and, and, you know, we're going to get the video game items, right? This is another point where I think Nier and Yoko Taro and the team that, that made both Nier and Nier Replicant very much like lean into there. There are parts of this game that I do feel are, are almost like send ups of very specific game ideas. Mm-hmm. And this is part of it that like, we're, we're going to go get the different pieces of the video game item to unlock the final boss's lair. Like, you know, we're going to mm-hmm. go, reforge the fire emblem or whatever we're gonna get the the stones what was it was the sages no for ocarina of time it was like you had to get the stuff to open the temple of time and then you had to gather the sages to get to ganondorf's castle yeah um it's a very honestly a very zelda thing at the end of the day like this this is very much like yoko taro's zelda in a lot of ways (laughs) but 
Um, to go save the princess. Yeah, yeah, to go save the princess. Uh, Popola is like, no, don't do that. That might be dangerous. And and Yona might not even like be alive after all this time. And you're like, nah, no, 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 no. I'm gonna go do this. And and we kind of reiterate the whole um, villagers scared of Emil and Kaine thing, and that Popola is gonna try to work on it. Uh, once again, leaving on a very strange note with Devil and Popola. Uh, very much like uh, y'all. Y'all get weird. I remember when I was playing this game and I was like, these these characters that were helping me out a lot are suddenly like being very mean to my friends and I don't like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we head to the junk heap. So you, you head to the junk heap, which I think is like the right thing to do in the progression here. We can either go to the forest of myth or the junk heap, but the junk heap specifically is a very strange setup. I think even like replaying this um, as... as or re-seeing this, I should say, uh, you have to do like a two-parter here. So you basically go, you do something, and then you end up with a uh, a point where the game says, hey, we actually want mm-hmm. you to go do something else, so go do that and then come back. So we'll, we'll hit part two of this later, but we'll kind of do part one here, which is that um, we head to the junk heap and see the brothers scavenging and looking at stuff in a flashback, and then a cave-in happens, and uh, the big brother saves the little brother. Um, Jacob saves Gideon, uh, but the big brother is crushed in the ensuing collapse. Uh, and then the big scream happens. Everyone is really emotional, and then we uh, jump back forward in time. Uh, we are we are here now, and Gideon, the younger brother, is, is much older, uh, so... Jacob died roughly about four years ago is, is what he ends up telling us. Um, and we start asking about shades in the area after getting through a very uncomfortable conversation <laughs> about this. Uh, and Gideon just doesn't seem like he's taken it well. Like he's just really, he wants to murder things all the time, especially robots, really unhappy with robots. Uh, you, you have another mention here that, of of not liking the script, and so I want to dig into that here. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember what was it prompted. I mean, it, it must have been. I think I remember that it was the way that Gideon talks here is is literally just like no thoughts, head empty, just want to destroy robots. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. Like it. Look, subtext and, 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 this, is for cowards. Yeah, that that <laughs> and it's just like I I get the. Near is very much like a, a a broad strokes game above over like nitty gritty minutia of words on a page. Um, I just I just I just feel like I'm especially in this episode I was just running into a lot of issues where I'm like I don't know if like I feel like the, the and, it, and this also might be like a localization problem but like I feel like the the script is needed like a second pass by like another person to kind of like really clean up a lot of the weird idiosyncrasies and also just I don't know it. I, one thing I want to point out here that I do think is genuine, I, I think is trying to come across, is that not only has Gideon just kind of been living here with his own rage for about mm-hmm. four years, but he's living here by himself with his own rage for four years. Sure. This this dude is zonked out of his mind. Like, he is, he is not in a good place. And I don't think that's like, oh, you know, dialogue is rough because they're trying to get that there. But I also think he is supposed to sound completely unhinged, like sure. just completely out of it. Um, and Nier and Weiss are just kind of being like, huh, 
okay, buddy, um, we're mm. going to go look for some shades. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. catch you around, I guess. Um, not that that's a complete excuse or even, like, an explanation, but I, I do think that is an intent here. It's just kind of um, weird to, like, have a, a line. I, think that, I mean, I don't want to get too hung up on, like, one specific line, but that line was just, mm-hmm. like, let me tell you my new character trait. Mm, yes. But I don't know. Like, it's, again, I, a near is an emotional broad strokes game as opposed to lo- read line by line and pull what you can from it. Um, mm. I did make one I did make one, one line here that we kind of skipped over. When, uh, when in the flashback, when Gideon, like, screams for Jacob after he dies, it is the most, like, Yuri Lowenthal, Yosuke Hanamura-ass scream <laughs> I have heard come out of that man's mouth in, hot, in like, the past decade. And do you, do you have this... I don't know if you have this thing that I have where if, like, a voice actor has been in a role that, I, like, I really... Like, uh, something that I really love, that they're always going to be that person to me. Because, um, like, I, I imagine like, at this point, like, Yuri Lowenthal's been in so much. Like, he's, he's fucking Spider-Man to a lot of people, but he's always going to be Yosuke Hanamura to me, the same way that Liam O'Ryan is Akiko Sonata. And, like, so every time Weiss talks, I'm like, it keeps happening in this game a lot. Because, honestly, like, there's, like, a handful of... People who've gone on to be like really, you know, big actors have got gone to a lot of stuff. But I mean, if this was what like twenty ten, I think was this game came oh, out. Like a lot a, of those. This is a very stacked voice cast. Like yeah. this is a lot of people that you will recognize. Like and and to be fair, I do think Laura Bailey is someone who I always now at least hear as Kaine. Like I think. Oh yeah. In some ways, that like roles just become very defining. Even though that was not the first time I'd heard Laura Bailey in a game. I think her work is kind of is a, a step above most other voice work I've ever heard. I think I'd probably feel the same way if I heard like Jeremy Lay and other stuff. I would immediately sure. think female V. Um, yeah, but the, the, it, yeah, it just kind of Bailey specifically is such a funny one because like for the longest time she was Rise in Persona Four, which is stark contrast to who probably most associate with her with now is Abby Last of Us. Um, mm. And so like, yeah, it just feels like some actors have like those really defining roles that we always go back to yeah i i think it just whatever ends up being like the most defining uh like character for you like mm-hmm. like for me it's it's that we haven't even gotten to what i think are some of the best kind of moments uh mm-hmm. in near yet but even just the lines that that she has during like the end of part one and stuff like that are just fantastic and just like mm-hmm. lodge themselves in my brain is like this is laura bailey um <laughs> um Anyways, uh, we we go through kind of a dungeon here because we have to power up the two-hander Iron Will sword. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, this is maybe one of the parts of Nier that I like the least because I mm. feel like I ran this dungeon about 12 different times over the course of playing yeah. Replicant. Um, this is very much like... We, yeah, we are doing a dungeon. Um, there's a lot of like fighting the same robots and turrets over and over again uh there's like a couple room puzzles maybe and then some like it's all like bomb throwing timing yeah. stuff like that so like bullet hell on a track where you're like just kind of shooting in place um I, at one point i was so deep into this and had played this so many times that i knew exactly where every enemy spawn was and i was like taking mm-hmm. them out the second they showed up <laughs> Um, but we do eventually get the the stuff that we need uh, for this Iron Will Sword, including the memory alloy, and uh, bring it back to Gideon. And Gideon's like, I'll fix it up. It'll take you some time. So uh, 
Why don't you just go talk to Popola and get a quest? <laughs> we head back, and Popola says she doesn't have any new information. Uh, we are like, can we do anything in the meantime? We got to burn time for the sword. So this is when Popola brings up that the red bag man uh, that we have become so accustomed to has been skipping out on work, and she wants us to go check on him. Uh, so this is a part where I'll say uh, this is new content for Replicant. Mm -hmm. This is a new quest for Replicant. Uh, there's other stuff in this game that is new as well. We'll get to it when we get to it, but this is probably one of the most notable pieces of new content for Replicant that was added in the remaster. Um, up to this point, the Red Bag Man has kind of been this running gag, right? We can do various side quests where we interact with him and his wife and their their weird relationship and all that we head to the seaport here for this this now main quest the the missing ferryman uh she wants us to to go looking for him because she's very upset um they fought he ran off um we have to do a bunch of pseudo fetch quest stuff that ultimately turns into something much more because we end up at a shipwreck that is over uh, at the seaport and Kaine is getting bad vibes from it. Um, we kind of run around the ship in a cool, like, 2D fashion. Uh, there's a bunch of scares, I guess you would say, like haunting spookiness. Mm. Not like jump scares or anything, but um, the vibes we find are off. out. Yeah, vibes are off. Uh, and we begin to examine the wreckage and find that the ship was once used by slavers interesting considering this doesn't really pop up anywhere else in the lore mm. as far as i remember that this exists but this is a like thing here um and and near is gobsmacked as you know ken by the notion um in a hidden room we find torture devices and a blood smear that reads let me out so bad things clearly went down and we end up on a lower floor and there is a freaking bloodbath down here it is bad there are just limbs and blood and everything everywhere and we find the missing ferryman amongst the carnage um ooh, <laughs> big genre shift yeah yeah uh so this game, this game wants to be everything i love that for that it's like barbie barbie the toy like the concept not the film so emil and kane then show up with us and uh we, we get to a room at the end, and here is our mysterious ghost specter girl that has been haunting us as we explore this little 2D area. Uh, and obviously, bad vibes. Vibes are off. Vice is like, there's something up here. But then suddenly, the postman. Remember the postman from the seaport that you, I think, helped out with that one quest that one time? He's here. Um, and he's been coming here lately to uh, tend to this girl who, who was apparently just found amidst the the shipwreck and um there is a specific thing so ken you and i talked about this beforehand we gotta address it here there is a line where the the guy the postman as he's like oh i've been taking care of her and trying to make sure she's good uh postman turns to kine and is like so this is kind of awkward but the girl is you know bleeding I brought a bunch of bandages with me, but, uh, well, how exactly does one deal with a woman's time of the month? And then Kaine, like, does not respond to him. And he's like, sorry, sorry, clearly crossed the line there. Forget I said anything. Um, I am going to ask you to put a big old pin in this. A pin that we're not going to be able to get back to for a while. But, what? um, 
it does very much fall under that classic what was the reference you had ken uh nasa sending a woman into space for six days <laughs> uh yeah i so okay I, i'm i'm confused as to how this could mean anything if this is new to near although now that i'm thinking about it i'm starting to get ideas i think like the the joke is very tired the joke like this that was when y'all told me that this was new i was like they made a men's stupid no understand how uterus work joke in 2019 2020 whenever it was i well so one thing i will say is that i think the postman is implied to just be like it's very much the like panicked father having to suddenly deal with something he doesn't know how to do which is like a very yeah outdated joke in some ways but it's both outdated and i also just feel like that again this comes down to like the dialogue itself like the actual lines that are written are don't don't play it up that way they play it as like this bumbling idiot that brings bandages when a girl's on her period and it's like what is yeah yeah, like you said the the joke is outdated it's not funny and it's like i don't get how we're still making this joke this many years on like if that this was from the original game i would be like fine that was you know 14 years ago i'll it's it's whatever but that to find out this was newly written and like put into something that was put out on a playstation 4 was just like really grown worthy so the thing I'm going... God, I hate that I've had to do this so much this episode. <laughs> um, I promise I'm not doing it just to be annoying. Um, the The thing I'm going to say is that the joke is the joke. The joke is that this dude is bumbling and is like just some random postman who's just been working his job and all of a sudden found himself in the care of this young girl. And then suddenly when he's faced with a thing, he does not know how to do it. So he just kind of like tries to figure out what best he can do and comes back without bandages, um, which I do. I mean, if we really want to get into like minutia of world building, like what would be the solution in this world? That's a pretty big question. Cause it's not like they have factories to produce like commerce goods, <laughs> like actual tampons in this world. Um, uh, I mean, I, this is where I'm going to admit my own ignorance, <laughs> but live on podcast, <laughs> the, just the, the world we have seen, especially cause like this is, I don't know what, what history is still left from the pre-apocalyptic world, but like, no, it's a great question. Yeah. Tampons and, you know, dealing with period is like a very natural thing that like if they've already done, like, yes, this is a post-apocalyptic world, but there's like a lot of infrastructure in terms of how individual societies run. Like I cannot, I cannot imagine that that specific I mean, like it, tampons and pads our, have got to be. Is our takeaway here that postman should have gone and asked a woman? Yes. Like that's, sure. that's the broad takeaway. The thing I want to emphasize is that there is context to this scene that does change it. That will happen I, later. And that is all I am going to say. I, uh, I cannot talk. Can I have like a sealed envelope moment? Yes. Is Kaine trans or intersex or? You have made your sealed envelope. Okay. But I will also say that the thing I'm referencing does not specifically reference. Like it it, it does not have to do with Kaine in this moment. Like I'm talking about specifically the situation surrounding the postman and the, the small girl. Um, Okay. Because as we soon learn, that's not a small girl. That's a shade. 
that is a straight up shade that is about to eat everybody uh, because she turns into a shade and attacks them. Um, so that's another thing to put a little pin in is like, that's not a human. That is a shade. Uh, that's even what Kaine warns them of is that like something's off here and realizes that this is not a small little human girl. This is a shade that is attacking them. Um, so now we fight giant shade girl uh, and we have a big old boss fight against this tentacle monster that's uh, fighting us on, on the deck of the ship and then on the beach. And oh boy, it's it's a fun fight from what I remember. I actually really like this boss fight. It was actually um, tough. And like that was it does some cool patterns and stuff like that that I remember really liking. Um Yeah, it does does throw stuff at you in a way that's very much like, oh, this is made by a team that has made has worked on the game previously and can now like create things based on the benefit of having seen the breadth of what Near Replicant can do. Um but after we get to this point where the fight has kind of come to a standstill and this uh, creature is like bearing down on the party and the all is lost moment is ensuing, the postman picks up a board and starts yelling at it to stop. Um, and the shade tries to talk back, but obviously we just get kind of that noise, that, that um, just, <laughs> I don't know what to call it, like Reaper noises just going... <laughs> Um, and he starts hitting her tentacle on, on the beach with, with the board uh, and starts saying stuff like, we can never be together, you disgust me, and the shade just stops. And at this point, you can form the lance and just take the creature's head off oh, with a dark lance. Um, a very, I think, even watching this back, affecting moment and way to end this fight. Um, and I'm curious how you felt about it. Yeah, I mean, it kind of... That did more to make me question the idea of like kill, no granted okay let me let me pull it back i don't regret killing the shade because shade was eating people um but it did it was a moment to contextualize like oh these aren't mindless at the very least like there is something going on up here like they are capable of forming attachments and they are capable of feeling abandoned and neglected and rejected uh in a way that Maybe it has, like, a wrinkle to it, but, like, it does ultimately raise questions of, like, okay, then why are you eating people? Why are you attacking people? Why do you need to be defended against? Uh, like, mm -hmm. what is the compulsion that these things feel? Mm -hmm. Which, again, like, very surprising if this was not originally in the game. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm interested to see how they kind of make that play in what was originally in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an interesting end to a quest. And then uh, we jump ahead a week after this this fight has ended, and the <laughs> postman thanks us. Yep. Well, I mean, Don't. everybody's got to recover and stuff. Yeah, but like we we haven't talked to this man in seven days. Well, it's been tough, you know. It was it was a rough fight. Everybody's got to relax. Um, the postman thanks us and says that apparently um, everyone knew that townspeople were kind of getting disappeared and eaten by shade, but they never knew um, like how it was happening and obviously you know him discovering that he feels very responsible but why says he's he's not at fault like he can't blame himself for that um and then the red bag lady shows up and uh we have a decision to make here about whether we're going to tell her the truth about what happened to her husband or not uh you and i obviously both chose the truth 
Mm-hmm. I feel like that really lines up with our own personalities as well as just like <laughs> what seems like the right choice here. Uh, but that one's already pretty sad. But if you lie to her, it's even worse <laughs> because she believes that the guy left because they fought too much. And she has a, a great line of dialogue here. Um, does that mean he fell out of love with me? Is it because we were always fighting? Oh, honey, I'm so, so sorry. I actually loved fighting with him, you know? It was the only time I felt like we were really communicating. It made me so happy in this weird way, but I guess it was only me who felt that way, huh? Uh, which, if you have done some of the side quests with uh, the Red Bag Man previously, he talks about how he actually loves to fight with his wife because it's they're both very just emotionally attached in those moments, so... Nice little gut punch for you. <laughs> yeah, don't don't be a liar because you'll just hurt people worse than the truth would. Because like that was mm-hmm. like that's such a like a shitty note in that on like and it almost makes me sad that you can't go back and just tell her the truth because mm-hmm. now you've just like she's created this whole narrative in her head that she blames herself for and that's just mm-hmm. shitty. Um, Vice says that uh, he's sad that he'll never hear the the bickering again and uh i just want to so I'll, I'll i'll close out these last few bullet points we go back to bobla give her the bad news she's like that really sucks by the way we already hired someone new <laughs> and <laughs> Pobla really just taking on the middle manager role there mm-hmm. uh and uh we do have mail that'll be what sends us back to the junk heap but a wise notes that even without those we have lost the world continues to turn and i feel like that's a really good place to end and kind of like talk about one last beat which is that a lot of part two of near replicant for me is seeing this world um cope with loss mm-hmm. like loss is a very big theme in part two so far uh we've had a lot of you know emil losing his body and um, coping with the loss of his sister as part of that as well. We have um, Kaine feeling kind of lost where she's at right now, not being allowed to be around people. We have the ferryman and, and the, the red bag man. And there's been a lot of loss in this world. And, and we've already kind of talked about the sense that like the world is falling apart. That's how they open part two is they're like, it has only been getting worse. Like, towns are getting attacked more often we open part two with shades attacking inside the village and all that um there's like a tangible sense of the world falling apart around these characters uh so i'm curious like i know you didn't like the red bag man's sort of whole shtick up to this point but did this moment still kind of hit you of like oh this this guy's gone now you're like never going to hear that line of dialogue you're never going to like talk to him about that ever again yeah i mean it it especially hit me because like i i was in the middle of like i had a quest for him that was that i'm never going to mm-hmm. do i guess uh unless like the game kind of like finds some way for you to maybe do that with his wife or something and so that in that way i was surprised by these characters that had been mostly like bit players suddenly becoming you know, being put in the line of fire of the actual realities of this world, which made it, it weird to me that this game, that these characters were made like brand new for this game and they never got actual names. That just feels like a very strange oversight. And I don't know if maybe they have names in like, uh, they don't have names in Canon. I'll just okay. tell you that. Um, um, that's a, that's a weird choice. I almost, I almost kind of like it in a way because I think what it really does for me is that 
it gets to me that this person was just kind of this person in Nier's life. Like, they were the fairy man. They were the red bad guy. Hey, it's the red bad guy who's always fighting with his wife. And, like, that's it's a very, like, real thing to have, like, oh, that's the person from this one place. So this is the barista mm. who always is, like, working on Sundays when I go in or stuff like that, right? And it's, you have these people who will still kind of drift in and out of life because that is the way of life is like things move on things change Mm -hmm. eventually and the sort of loss that we're experiencing here is not some grand character loss it's not like someone as important as like vice or kiny or emil or whatever has died it's some guy it's it's some dude that we knew and we just knew him by a few toss away personality traits but the loss can still hit you in that way i mean we don't even know the postman's name the postman is just the postman to mm-hmm. us but a lot of this stuff can still hit and i think that's like what i like about this and also stuff that yoko taro and crew get into in near automata and all that is that like even if these characters are, are very like external and very like or, or very on the periphery of your life they can still have this real impact when they're not there anymore um, and that's why I like this quest a lot. And to talk more about it, well, tune into future episodes of Normandy FM. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Any closing thoughts on this section? Um, it again, like it was the definition of it's so over. We are so back. I, I feel like I'm <laughs> jiving with more of parts of this game that I wasn't jiving with before, but I also feel like I'm picking up on other smaller things that I'm maybe still trying to, I, I guess, like, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to give the game the benefit of the doubt and kind of see, like, meet it on its own terms and see it through to the end, but it's very evocative of how I felt about Automata, is that, like, I, I a lot of the moment-to-moment of that game maybe did not stick with me, but I think the broad strokes will. Um, so, it is I certainly a near s- game. I'm so looking forward to, like, the next two episodes. You have no idea. Oh, my Great. God. And in fact, we'll even have a friend of the show, Jesse Vitelli, who was brought up earlier on one of those episodes for um, the Sacrifice and Loyal Cerberus episode, which should be a real banger. That's coming up in two episodes time. The next one will be the second half of the Junk Heap and the Memory Tree, which I think will probably be a pretty short episode, all things considered. So we might try and get that out sooner rather than later. Uh, Never hold us to a schedule, though, because (laughs) (laughs) that has not worked so far. <laughs> but uh for those of you who tuned in thank you so much for checking us out as always we are normandy fm you can support us at normandy patreon.com slash normandy fm uh follow us at twitter.com slash normandy fm show for as long as that platform is around and uh we're also on various other places ken is at ship shepherd cdr and i'm at c moosey on most places where you can find us um and as with every episode we like to shout out those who back us at the highest tier in this episode? That list is John Warren, Andrea Sheeran, Joshua Jarvis, Seth Pitts, Darius Pippins, Shane Erickson, Cypress Catwell, and Christoph Weiss. Thank you all so much for helping us do what we do here at Normandy FM. There's not much else to say. We'll just catch you next time for more Near Replicant here with Ken and I on Normandy. Normandy.